Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come before your throne of grace because of the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of the work that he did on the cross, his eternally efficacious sacrifice. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that we would be strengthened and encouraged by all that you have done for us in that magnificent work that began at the cross and ended with the session of the Lord Lord Jesus Christ, which is uh, currently continuing on our behalf. Now, Father, we ask that you uh, help us to focus and concentrate this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 is an argument for the superiority of Christ's high, priestly, high, <coughs> high priesthood based on the fact that it follows the pattern of the Melchizedekian priesthood, that Melchizedek was a royal priest, and it doesn't follow the pattern, use the word pattern instead of order, because it communicates, I think, a little better. Order of Melchizedek is one of those words we've been using a lot, but we tend to get, um, get it becomes one of those words that sort of loses meaning the more you say it. So after the pattern of Melchizedek, now last week, somebody asked me the question, if the Melchizedekian high priesthood was eternal. And I may have miscommunicated on that, uh, in that I was <clears throat> talking about the fact that Christ as a Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal because Christ is eternal, not because the Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal, because, of course, Melchizedek wasn't eternal, and any other examples of a royal priest king in the Old Testament were human, they weren't eternal. But the point that is being driven home by the writer of Hebrews is that there is a change of priesthood that means there's a change of law. Change of law it indicates a change of covenant. Uh, everything is structured according to these legal documents. And the change of, of priesthood is from one that is based in the Mosaic law after the pattern of the flesh to one that is based on the order of Melchizedek. It's an eternal high priesthood, and the emphasis here is on eternal. So I've got ten points of summary. Now, I went through eight of 
or nine of these last week, so if you were here, you should have them. If you weren't here, you will frustrate yourself trying to write them down because I simply want to breeze through them so that we get context for where we are in verses 23 to 25, okay? So I just try to alleviate a little frustration. There's always somebody who comes in that wasn't here the week before, and when you're doing a serial study like this, they feel like they're a little bit uh, out of place. Okay, first point that the writer of Hebrews is making, the completion of the plan of salvation could not take place through the Levitical priesthood because it was incomplete. This is verse 11. The Levitical priesthood was incomplete. Fascinating how this concept of incomplete and complete works, weaves itself all the way through the book of Hebrews in various ways. Second point that he makes is that because the order of Aaron was insufficient, another order or type of priest was necessary, and that's in the second part of verse 11. Third, he makes a point that the order of priesthood, this new order or type of priesthood, is tied to a particular covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And this is in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse, verse 12. Fourth, a change in the priesthood therefore necessitates a change of covenant also in verse 12. There's a change of the law, change of covenant. Fifth, the Levitical priesthood was based on physical factors, not spiritual factors. This is a really important point because most people never understand this. You didn't have to be saved. You didn't have to be spiritually growing. You didn't have to be anything spiritual to be a Levitical priest. You just had to be a descendant of Levi without any physical deformities. And to be a high priest, you just had to be physically related to to Aaron. Sixth point, Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi, so he wasn't qualified under the Mosaic law to be the high priest. Therefore, another order of priesthood was necessary. Under the Mosaic code, Jesus would have no right to be high priest because he was of the tribe of Judah. And this is covered in verses uh, 13 and 14. Seventh point, the Mosaic Code said nothing of another kind of priesthood because it wasn't operational uh, within Israel as such in that time. Eighth, therefore the Lord as a Melchizedekian priest, high priest comes, it is superior because that order did not pass away. It's still there but it is not part of the Mosaic Code or the op- that which was operational specifically to Israel. We could say that which was target-specific to Israel. Ninth point that he makes is in verses 15 to 16, Christ's high priesthood is not based on a temporal law code, but on the power of an endless life. And this is where he starts bringing in this idea of eternity, And from 16 down through 25, this idea of eternity, that that he is eternal, and therefore the priesthood is eternal, and therefore whatever he does has eternal value, is his basic argument. And that is so fascinating in light of uh, claims today 
that it was the early church, specifically the Nicene church in the early 4th century, that invented the idea of Jesus' deity. When in Hebrews, it's very clear that this whole idea of eternality is a God-only characteristic or attribute. And the whole argument in this second half of the chapter is that because Jesus is eternal, it gives us an eternal high priest, and therefore that which the high, our eternal high priest does has eternal application. Therefore, where we're going to be, where we're headed in verse 25 is because we have an eternal high priest, he secures our salvation eternally. Because we have an eternal high priest, he secures our salvation eternally. It's one of the strongest passages for eternal security in the New Testament. So we come down to verse 15 and I retranslated it last week to give it a little more, uh, clarity that it should read it that is this principle of change in the priesthood and Jesus higher status as uh, covered in the previous verses 12 13 and 14 is even made and that that even there is an ascensive chi it's not and it is yet far more evident it is it is even made exceedingly more evident it's a it's a strong superlative here it is even made exceedingly more evident this uh, it's a self-evident logical logically clear conclusion that since there um evident since there is I didn't get I let that is out again it, it is even made exceedingly more evident since there is another priest oh, since I did this last week you know, that's what I get. I took it right out of my notes again and didn't, didn't change it. I'm going to change it right now. Since, since. Yeah. It is even made exceedingly more evident since another, another priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is arisen. That got it right. Hmm? You yeah, know, comments. Okay. It is even made exceedingly more evident since another priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, is arisen. And that's a, has a perfective sense of the present tense there. It's something that arose in the past and is, has ongoing efficacy. Now, point number 10, the tenth point he makes here, is that Melchizedek is dropped out of the picture at this point. He's left behind, and the superiority of Christ is established as the high priest of a better covenant. And he goes again to Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the emphasis, is that word forever. He's going to quote this again in terms and quote the whole verse in verse 21, but here he's just quoting the two stanzas so he can pull in and emphasize that one word, forever. He's not emphasizing anything else in the quote, just the forever aspect that that makes it a superior priesthood. And then he will develop that in the next couple of verses. In verse 18 and 19, continues the idea that the law made nothing perfect and therefore there's a need to have a better hope. So verse, I got that, that slides out of order. 
this high, the 11th point is this high priesthood is based on a legal oath with the result that his life is an eternal surety or security deposit of our salvation. Now, that's kind of where we stopped last time, so let me pause on this a minute. The point that is being made when we get down to verse 20 and 21, to, down to 22, is the idea that this is based on an oath, and there was no oath sworn by God in relation to the Levitical priesthood. This idea of an oath brings in a, a certainty or a legality to the, uh, to the establishment of this priesthood that goes beyond that of the Mosaic Covenant, makes it a, takes this priesthood to a higher level. So his argument in verse 20 is, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, and then there's a parenthetical in verses 21 with a quote from Psalm 110, and the thoughts picked up in verse 22. So let me go down to that next slide. It should read, inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, and then verse 22 here, by so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. Now, just set aside verse 21 for a second, because that's just a, a quote from Psalm 110.4 again to support his point from the Old Testament. Now, the word translated surety is the Greek word engos, and I meant to transliterate that. That should be E-N-G-U-O-S. A double gamma is always pronounced like an N-G, so just like angel is really A-G-G-E, but the gamma gamma comes across as an N-G. So it's engoth, and this means surety. It has the idea of a person who takes responsibility for the payment of another's debt or a pledge deposited as a security against loss or damage. Now, let me comment on that. The first idea... Is the <clears throat> this word is only used this one time in the in the entire New Testament. It's common in extra biblical documents. In the first meaning, it would take it, it would relate to substitutionary atonement, the idea of a person who takes responsibility for the payment of another person's debt. But that's not the context here. So it's not he's not talking about Christ being our surety at the cross. He's talking about his being our surety as our high priest in his ongoing uh, <clears throat> intercessory ministry as our high priest. The second idea of Nguas is that, that of a pledge deposited as a security against loss or damage. It's like the security deposit you make when you go rent a place. You put up usually a month's rent or two months' rent as a security deposit in case or just to hold the place until you can move in to take care of any damage that may incur. And as long as that security deposit is made, that's yours. That's a legally binding uh, thing. So that's the point that he's making is that Jesus has become our security and an ongoing security deposit of a better covenant. Now, as soon as you translate in the sense of a security deposit, the key word there is security, is that as long as he is our security deposit, then whatever, whatever transactions occur on our behalf 
are as long-lasting as his security deposit, which means you, the salvation can't be lost. It's a great argument for eternal security that he is our he is our surety. Now, in verse, as we go forward into verse 23, we have another, he brings in another point, and that is that also related to eternality. He says there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, the key interpretive words here are in these two verses, are death and forever, the contrast between the temporal nature of all human priests. Sooner or later they have to die, so there has to be a whole bunch of them. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood, and that word that's translated unchangeable is the Greek word aparabatos. Aparabatos. Now, there's three parts to this word. There's, a, there's the alpha privative at the beginning, that first letter A, which is like our UN. It's a negative, un. And then parabatas, you have a para, which is a, means something uh, going beyond. It's a, it's a preposition attached to the root batas. And it has to do with something that you're not able to go beyond. You can't go beyond this point. And it comes to mean something that is unsurpassable, or that which is the final or ultimate expression of something. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, but he, that is Jesus Christ, because he continues forever, so he picks up that whole theme of he's a priest forever, according to the uh, order of Melchizedek, that he is the final priesthood. He is that unsurpassable priesthood. He is that which you could never have anything that would go beyond that. He is the final expression of a priesthood because he is the only one that is eternal. That's the foundation of the statement. Now, now I want you to take a look at that verse 24 a minute. It says, but he, because he continues forever, so you have a causal statement there, and then you're going to have the, the uh, proposition stated Because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. But when you get to verse 25, you're going to draw another conclusion from the causal clause. Because he continues forever, first of all, he has an unchangeable priesthood. And second, we can draw the conclusion that because he continues forever, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives, eternality, he always lives to make intercession for them. So verse 25 is built on the doctrine of the eternality of the second person of the Trinity, the eternality of Jesus Christ. That because he, because he continues forever, because he's eternal, he's able to save to the most complete way, the fullest way, those who come to God through him, since he always, always lives, eternality, to make intercession for them. So this whole passage just drips with eternality, and the point is that because Jesus is eternal, because his high priestly ministry is eternal, anything he does 
toward us in relation to his eternal high priestly ministry is eternal. So when he saves you, he saves you eternally, not conditionally. When he saves you, it is not with a caveat attached that I will save you as long as you're obedient. It is totally based upon him. When we look at the verb... The verb has as its subject, the one who performs the action of the verb, he is able to save. The one who performs the action is Christ, not us. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. The most important thing you can understand in salvation is that you don't contribute one thing to your salvation or your security. Not one thing. That's what grace is. Jesus does everything, and we don't do anything. Not one thing. It's totally dependent upon him and his power and his will. Now let's look at a couple of terms that are here. If you're using a New American Standard, I don't know what the NIV says, but the New American Standard says, therefore he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Sounds good, doesn't it? But it's confusing because in James 4, the concept of drawing near to God, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, is a is a fellowship verse. It's not a salvation verse. And it's a totally different word. The word in uh in James is not a, the 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 word that we find um find here in in Hebrews seven seven twenty five. What we have here is the simple word well I'll have it up here. Simple word uh proserkamai. Pros is the preposition, prefix. Erkamai simply means to come. And it's translated to come many, many times through, uh, through Scripture, that those who come to God through him is simply a statement of salvation. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come to me. There's just Erkamai, not pros Erkamai, but just come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what rest. Coming to God is another synonym for trusting Christ as your Savior, because that's the way we, we come to God. So in verse, verse 25, when we read that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God, those who come to God are those who, who believe Christ died on the cross for their sins. Now, what does it mean that he is able to save them to the uttermost? That is the Greek word pontelis. Now, the pon, the P-A-N, means all or every. It's the word that, that, that encompasses everything. And teles comes from our, our familiar word, uh, teleo, telos, and it has to do with complete. So it has the idea of with all completeness. So he is able to save completely or utterly or to the uh, fullest extent. He is the one who is able to do all of the work related to salvation for those who come to God through him. So that, again, we have that statement that echoes what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Same 
grammatical construction, a dia plus the, the genitive. So the, the statement here is a very strong statement that Christ is the one, or God is the one who saves us to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And it connects that ongoing salvation, that security, with his intercessory ministry. His keeping us is part of his high priestly ministry. That's what he prays in his high priestly prayer. So this is a very strong verse and a very important verse for understanding the doctrine of eternal security. Now, this is a doctrine that so many people are getting confused about today because you have a lot of historical confusion, and today you just have a lot of just plain confusion about because nobody wants to teach the Bible anymore. So I thought it was important to go back over the doctrine of eternal security, and I've added a few things and tweaked a few things to try to deal with some of the things that are going on today and answer some questions that I've had. And it's amazing. I've had several questions from people coming from the direction of how do I deal with lordship salvation, the lordship concept of perseverance. I've had people ask me, they're talking to somebody and this comes up. I know of one person who doesn't live locally, lives in another part of the country and has been going around from church to church for a number of months trying to find a church where they can at least find a level of, you know, a comfort zone. The kids can go to Sunday school and always gets twisted up on this. And if you don't understand the theological nuances, and this one guy was telling me, he says, it's almost like playing a word game with a pastor. You come up and you ask them, well, do you believe this? And, and, how the, and they, they try to do everything but tell you what they really believe so that you'll still come to their church. And you have to sort of understand the jargon or the code words to know what to listen to, or you're just going to be, be suckered right into some uh, congregation. You're going to think it sounds right, but it really isn't. So let's go through the doctrine of eternal security. First, let's define it. Got two or three slides here just thinking through our definition. First of all, it is the work of God. God is the one who secures us, not us. God provides the security. It is the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. There is something that happens that is so dramatic when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, that is so multifaceted. We receive the imputation of Christ. We're justified. We're regenerated. We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We're given a spiritual gift. We're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. All these different things, and I could go on and on, all of these things happen at that instant of salvation. To say that you can lose your salvation isn't simply a matter of saying, well, he was going to go to heaven and now he's not. That is such an oversimplification because to lose your salvation means you have to be unbaptized by the Spirit. You have to become unregenerate. You have to lose that imputed righteousness. All of these different things have to be reversed so that you can then lose your salvation. And it's a real failure to deal honestly with the complexity of what God does for us at the instant of salvation. 
So first part of the definition is that it's the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed by any thought, act, or change of belief in the person saved. You can't get saved one day. I mean, truly understand the gospel that Christ died for you and you trust him. You can't believe that one day and disbelieve it the next day and lose your salvation. Salvation is not based on what you do after you're saved. It's based on that point where you put your faith alone in Christ alone. And it's, it's so simple, but it is such a battlefield today. You may not realize this, and if you're not engaged in trying to witness to people or even trying to have a conversation about what you believe with other Christians, then when I start talking about things like this and doing this comparison and contrast with with these other belief systems, then you're going to just be totally lost. But that's because you're you're living a spiritual life on an island, which frankly is not a biblical spiritual life. We have to be engaged witnessing to unbelievers and encouraging believers. And so anytime you start opening your mouth about what you believe as a Christian to anybody else, they're going to immediately say, well, I heard this or I believe this. And now all of a sudden you're put in a place where you have to articulate what you believe and why you believe it. And the next thing you know, you're going to come along and somebody's going to say, well, I've been reading this book by this author and he says this. And I really like that. That makes sense to me. And you're going to say, well, wait a minute. Let's go to the Bible. Oops. Where are my notes? Where's that scripture verse? What did Robbie say? Somebody commented on this the other day to me and said, I went back over my notes and I realized if I just knew everything in my notes, I'd be really smart. (laughs) But we're all that way. It it just takes time. And, And when I say that, it's not to kind of ridicule or get down on anybody. I mean, I'm just as much at fault of that as the next person. I don't think that quick on my feet. Usually somebody says, well, what about this? And I think, hmm, and on the way home I have a good answer. I know you can all relate to that. Okay, let me break this down in a slightly different way. When a person trusts in Christ for salvation... God permanently justifies and regenerates and gives eternal life. And this cannot be lost, no matter what the person does or does not do, from that instant on until the day he dies. Okay, let let me comment on this, because each one of these clauses can be challenged and attacked and, you know, changed and misinterpreted by any number of people as they say, well, what do you mean by belief? What do you mean by trust? You know, a person can, according to some people, actually believe in Christ, and it's not a saving faith. What do you mean by salvation? What do you mean by justification? Most people today, you'd be amazed. I've <clears throat> had the opportunity in the past few days to spend some time with some of my pastor friends. I won't mention them. Yeah, I will. Bruce was over here the other day, David Dunn. We, we just have a great time together. And um, eager, 
was over here. Chris was back here. And we were just having a real, and Ike was over here last week, and we're just having a real gripe session about how hard it is trying to teach, and this doesn't relate to either of our congregations, but it relates to other teaching environments that we have, Christians who are so biblically ignorant, profoundly, abysmally ignorant of the scripture and basic doctrine and don't seem to care a whit that they are. In fact, I experienced this some when I was teaching at College of Biblical Studies. In fact, they think that they can come in and on the basis of the fact that they have uh, been studying their Sunday school quarterly to teach their Sunday school classes for 10 years, they think they can really tell you what the Bible says, and it doesn't matter the fact that you've been a pastor for 30 years and have a master's of theology and everything else and know the original languages. They're right, and they really came to school just to get a diploma rubber stamp and tell you what the Bible says. The arrogance that's out there today in the, in the visible church is unbelievable. This country is headed for a real discipline from God because the only thing that's supposed to be the salt of the nation is has lost its savor. It is the, the church today is ignorant. It's running away from the truth. It is so postmodern. The stories I get from the few people that we have that are going to seminary is that the seminary students are so postmodern that if they try to chat to just in conversation say, well, maybe the Bible actually says X. Well, how can you say that? That would mean I'm wrong and I'm offended. It's difficult for them to even have a conversation with other students because everybody wants to think that whatever they generate out of the idolatry of their own navel is just absolute truth. It's, 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 it's incredible. It's so great to have a congregation like this. Why don't you just fall down on your knees every night to thank God for it because people want to know the Bible. But most people out there want, they, they want a band-aid. They want something that makes them feel like they've done something for God. And, and that's it. And if you don't validate that, then you're just right out of the pit of hell. You're just judgmental and arrogant and, and terrible. So it's really hard to have these, have discussions, but you have to know what's going on. When a person trusts in Christ, faith doesn't mean faithfulness. John MacArthur tried to do that in his first edition of the Gospel according to Jesus. He tried to say that pistis in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, should be understood as faithfulness. For by grace you've been saved through faithfulness. Let's go see the Pope. That's Roman Catholic theology. You're saved by your faithfulness. You're not saved by the object of faith in Jesus Christ. You're saved by faithfulness. So I say when a person trusts in Christ, by trust we mean to rely on, to believe in, that's how the Apostle John expresses it in the Gospel of John again and again and again, is to, to believe in Christ, to accept Christ as Savior, to accept what he did on your behalf. That's the imagery of Jesus' bread of life. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, 
It is accepting him and all that he is and does into us, accepting it into our life. And those are just different ways of expressing this concept of completely and exclusively relying upon Jesus. That means that you're not going to trust in Christ and get any soteriological benefit from uh, going to church or from participating in the sacraments. It's faith alone. Not You're not helping it or strengthening it any by doing anything else. It's just only believing that Jesus died for you. And the object of faith is what has the value. It's not the kind of faith, because faith is faith. Now, if you talk to anybody coming out of a Calvinistic position that holds to a lordship view of perseverance, they see faith as a gift. They see faith as a gift. Hold your place here in Hebrews and just turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. I think I covered this last week. I don't know which night, but I went <clears throat> did a lot of teaching on this section 1 through 10 when I was at the WHW conference out in Los Angeles. Verse 1 through 7, or verses 1 through 7, are one sentence in the Greek. The subject, the grammatical subject of that sentence doesn't occur until verse 4, God. You can circle that. That's your grammatical subject. That means everything that is said up to that point is secondary to the main idea of this sentence. The main idea of the sentence is expressed in the, the independent clause of the sentence, which is composed of your grammatical subject and your, your verbs. You have three verbs that, are, that explain the action of God. God performs the action. And the three verbs begin in the second part of verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration. He raised us up together and made us sit together. Those are the three verbs. So you have one subject, God, who does three things. He makes us alive together, raises us together, and sits us together. Three things he does. Now, if I were to ask you... Give me one word that would summarize the work that Christ did in uh, making us alive together, raising us up together, and sitting us together with Christ. What would that one word be? What would that one word be? Tom, you got it? What's that one word be? No? God, that's the first one is regeneration. I want you to think about this. That's why I'm asking this question. Kind of unusual in Bible class. He, he made us alive together. That's regeneration. Made us alive together, ra- uh, r- raised us together, and seated us. He made us alive, raised us, seated us. What one word covers those three things? He saved us. He saved us. That's why you have this almost an expletive at the end of verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, he summarizes these three verbs in the one verb, you have been saved. And he says, by grace you have been saved. That is, it's, it's a statement that's made 
in the middle of these three verses that is grammatically unrelated to the rest of the verse, the rest of the sentence from one to seven. But why is that important? This is one of those great examples I used to show why grammar really matters. Why is that important? Do you see that phrase, for by grace you have been saved anywhere else? Where do you see it? Verse 8. That's right. What happens in verse 8 is he's using that phrase, for by grace you have been saved, to summarize everything he said in 1 through 7. He's just taken all that, all that content in 1 through 7, and he scrunched it down to one phrase, by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved. And he adds the idea in verse 8 that it's through faith. All of this that God does for you in verses 5, 6, and 7 is done through faith. And then you have the phrase, and that. Now, the interesting thing in the Greek is that the that is a neuter in the Greek. It's a neuter pronoun. And a neuter pronoun has to refer to easy questions. See, I'm, I'm being so Aristotelian tonight, so Socratic. What's, what A neuter pronoun has to refer to A, a masculine noun, B, a feminine noun, or C, a neuter noun. A, B, or C. C. Well, grace is a feminine noun, and faith is a feminine noun. So the that can't refer to faith or grace. So it's not the faith that's the gift, which is what every Calvinist will tell you. It is what God did for you in, in, in 2, 5, 6, and 7. The fact that he made you alive together, raised you together, and seated you together is the gift. That is the gift of God. That whole salvation package is the gift of God, not the faith. But see, when you're, the faith that saves you is a different kind of faith, then you can have a non-saving faith in Jesus. So if you can believe in Jesus and it's not salvific, it won't save you. And you can have a faith in Jesus that can save you. How does a person over here distinguish his non-saving faith in Jesus from the person over here who has saving faith in Jesus? What's the difference going to be? Because the person over here is not going to have works consistent with his faith. And this person is going to have works consistent with their faith. So the only way you know if you really believe in Jesus is you have works that are consistent with your faith. So how do you know if you're saved? Works. It's legalism. But it's a works that's brought in the back door, not brought in the front door. So that's why I have this statement here. When a person trusts in Christ for salvation, then God does the work. He permanently justifies, regenerates, and gives eternal life. I didn't have, I couldn't put everything in there, but I just thought those three things summarize it. He justifies, that means he imputes righteousness and declares you just. He regenerates, you, you get a new human spirit, you're born again, you're given, uh, and you're given eternal life. And this cannot be lost, no matter what you do or don't do. Now, that's really important because what happens is 
that within 90% of Christianity, people say that, that what you do or don't do after you trust in Christ is either going to cause you, on the one hand, to lose your salvation if you were saved, or it's going to prove whether you had the right kind of faith, or whether it was, if it was just a non-saving faith or a saving faith. So this salvation cannot be lost no matter what that person does or does not do from that instant on till the day he dies. Now, the two schools of theology that you have to understand here are on the one hand Calvinism and on the other hand Arminianism. Calvinism is a theology that is developed from the followers of John Calvin, and it is not necessarily everything Calvin believed, but it is what is basically calcified into his theology by the end of the 16th century. A man by the name of uh, James Arminius or Jacobus Arminius, whether you want to use the Latin or, or the English form, comes along and he actually believed in eternal security. But his followers solidified his theology and you had this huge theological confrontation that occurred in the Synod of Dort in Holland in the early 1600s. I think it was like 16, 1615 or 1614, something like that. And that's the, the, the Arminians actually had their five points and they were called the five remonstrance and they were the five points of Arminianism. And the Calvinists answered it with their five points called the counter-remonstrance, and that became known as the, under the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. TULIP is for total depravity, but they actually mean total inability. You can't even exercise neutral, positive volition to God. Nothing, you can't do anything. God does everything. He even gives you positive volition. So you have total inability... The U is for unconditional election, that God doesn't base his choice of who will be saved and who won't on any condition. He just chooses, you, you, and you will be saved, the rest of you won't. Now, in the most more extreme forms, you get a double predestination, where you four are predestined to heaven and the rest of you are predestined to hell. But not every Calvinist holds to double predestination, but it's sort of a passive double predestination. The L stands for limited atonement. See, if God chose who would be saved, then that's set in concrete. So Jesus shouldn't, doesn't need to die for those who aren't chosen. So he only dies for those who are chosen. And they'll say terms like, well, then if you believe Jesus died for the unsaved, then he just spilled his blood on the cross like it's an accident. So that's the L. And the I is irresistible grace or sometimes efficacious grace, and in its cl- this will confuse everybody here, I have to re-educate every young guy that goes to seminary. Efficacious grace doesn't mean, in its historical, theological context, as almost every theologian has ever used it, efficacious grace does not mean that the Holy Spirit makes your faith efficacious for salvation. Efficacious grace means that the Holy Spirit is going to give you the grace you need to be saved because you're the elect. It's a Calvinistic term. Some of you had it redefined for you, which was not really kosher. 
the term historically by every theologian for the last 500 years has meant that the Holy Spirit is going to irresistibly give you grace. You can't say no. He is going to give you the grace you need to trust Christ as Savior because he's going to give you the faith also. That's historic Calvinism. And the P is perseverance. Perseverance isn't that, although some like, uh, like, uh, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer held to a non-lordship perseverance where for him perseverance of the saints was the perseverance of Christ. But for most Calvinist and Reformed theologians, the P stands for the perseverance of the saints. And what it really means is you persevere in good works so that you know that you're saved. If you don't persevere in good works, then you didn't have the right kind of faith, you didn't have efficacious grace, and you just had a non-saving faith in Jesus. So that's how they define Now let's look at a couple of historical documents so we understand this. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the uh, early 1600s, by the so-called Westminster divines, the Westminster theologians, which really uh, captures English Presbyterian theology. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it states, they, notice the grammatical subject here, that's really important, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved effectually called. See, I told you, efficacious grace was terminology that meant the Holy Spirit irresistibly draws you to the cross. That's There's the term. Effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. What that's saying is if you're saved, you can't Two days later, deny Christ, go into carnality for the rest of your life, and die in a cesspool of sin. Can't do it. Not if you were really saved. You may commit egregious sins as a believer. You may have periods of carnality, but you're not going to stay there with the pigs and the prodigal son until the day you die. Not if you were really saved. So what are they saying? If you're really saved, you've got to have works consistent with your salvation. So it says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere. Notice that they will certainly persevere. Who performs the action of the certainly persevere? The they, the believer, not God. They shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved. Now, Louis Burkhoff, well-known <coughs> Reformed theologian, we had to read his systematic theology, uh, parts of it when we were when I was in seminary, uh, very good but very Reformed, good in some parts. Uh, he says the doctrine of perseverance requires careful statement, especially in view of the fact that the term perseverance of the saints is liable to misunderstanding. We should guard against the possible misunderstanding that this perseverance is regarded as an inherent property of the believer or as a continuous activity of man by means of which he perseveres in the way of salvation. See, he recognizes the danger there that it's not, you can't articulate it as man being the one who works. 
However, Charles Hodge, who was a great Reformed 19th century theologian, wrote in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 9.27 regarding the Apostle Paul that this devoted apostle considered himself as engaged in a life struggle of his salvation. Huh? So can you picture Paul waking up every day struggling to make sure he was saved? Well, that was hot. That was Charles Hodge, not to be confused with Zane Hodges. Okay, that was Charles Hodge, 19th century Princetonian theologian. His son, A.A. Hodge, named for uh, the man who founded Princeton, the uh, law college, uh, which became Princeton uh, Seminary. A.A. Hodge wrote, Perseverance in holiness, therefore, in opposition to all weakness and temptations, is the only sure evidence of the genuineness of past experience of the validity of our confidence as to our future salvation. In other words, the only way you can know is by your experience of good works, not the promise of God. See, that's the difference. Is God's promise good enough, or do I really... I don't look to the Bible, I look to... Fruit. I have to become a fruit inspector rather than relying on the promise of God. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have an Arminian like Robert Shank who says, there is no saving faith apart from obedience. There is no valid assurance of election and final salvation for any man apart from deliberate perseverance in faith. Now, he's a, he's a see how close that sounds? to what the Calvinist says. Now, the way most people think of this is that Calvinism and Arminianism are on opposite ends of the spectrum. It's a misconception. They think that Arminianism and and Calvinism are complete opposites. But it's really more like this. There's just a little bit of distance between them because the Arminian is putting works up front, and the uh, the Lordship Calvinist is putting them in the back door. The Arminian says there's no eternal security, and the Lordship Calvinist says there's eternal security, but you can't really know you're saved if you don't have works. They're both introducing works into the equation. But Scripture says it's not on the basis of works, either before or after salvation. And so in either one of the in, in neither of these systems can you really know if you're saved. Now where it gets tricky is you'll go up and you'll ask somebody, let's say you're out there in, in the rest of the country or the world somewhere, and you're trying to look for a church and you say, Do you believe in eternal security? And the pastor says, Yes, I believe that once saved, always saved. But what he didn't tell you is he doesn't know if you can know if you're once saved. He doesn't know how you can be sure you're once saved. And I remember asking John MacArthur one time when he was speaking in, uh, uh, at, a, at a bookstore in Dallas for a pastor's breakfast, and Tommy Eisford and I were sitting right in front of him, and I raised my hand and I said, well, Dr. MacArthur, are you sure that you're saved? Well, only 99% sure. See, even he couldn't be 100% sure that he was going to go to heaven when he died because there was a possibility, at least, that the faith he had in Jesus was a non-saving faith, that there might come a time when he might reject Christ and fall into 
sin for the rest of his life, and then he would have proved that it was a false faith. It was a pseudo-faith, a pseudo-salvation. So that sort of sets it up. This is the battle, and what we have in the middle as the alternative to this is the movement that really, I mean, not that the theology wasn't there before because it was, but it became crystallized in the midst of this theological debate that uh, began to develop in the 60s and 70s, it became known as the grace, uh, free grace movement. And that was really a product, a lot of the writings of uh, Zane Hodges, Professor Dow Seminary, who was my first year Greek professor, and some of the books that he wrote. He wrote a great book called The Gospel, uh, the, the Gospel Under Siege. And I remember there was another well-known, beloved professor, Dow Seminary, named S. Lewis Johnson. S. Lewis Johnson was uh, Pastor Thames' Greek professor when he was in seminary. So a lot of guys who came out of that background went up to seminary and came, and they learned, they had this sort of presuppositional trust in Dr. Johnson. And within three months, they were five-point Calvinists because they had been told that they could trust Johnson. Wrong. And um, so Johnson became a five-point Calvinist, at least had the integrity to realize that he wasn't in step with the seminary, so he, he reti- retired from being a professor at the seminary. But he did a, I remember when he and Zane Hodges had a debate at, at a brown bag luncheon at Dallas Seminary back in the 80s, and he repunctuated the title of Zane's book, and he said it was, he was here to review the book, The Gospel Under Siege by Zane Hodges. So they've had a lot of fun with that, and they, of course, were very good friends. And we were all, back in those days, we were all gentlemen at Dallas Seminary. But this has been a battle. And now what's happened, and some of you are aware of this and others of you have not, but even within the Grace Evangelical Society, there's developed within this a new kind of twist that there are those who are saying, and Zane is one of them, I think he's completely off on this, that... All you need, that the gospel content is just accepting, believing that Jesus will give you eternal life. What's not there? This has become a major battle. It's affected us at Schaefer Seminary. They had a big conference in Dallas last week dealing with this, and I was going to go, but it was just a bridge too far after coming back from WHW. But this has become the big, the big issue now, and you, you know, these battles are going on. And you just need to be aware of some of these things because you may, may hear things. But in First Corinthians four, four thirteen, Paul writes, "For I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus gave us eternal life." God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. It says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, what's happening now is we're getting people in the free grace camp who have, and the terminology has been developed by others, have a crossless gospel. That you can, as long as you're trusting Jesus to save you, you don't have to believe in the deity of Christ or his substitutionary atonement. You just believe that he's going to give you eternal life and that's enough. 
and this is going to be a major issue. And the sad thing is what we're seeing is, is in the last 30 years, we've seen 50 at least, maybe 100, new theological positions develop, fragmenting evangelicalism, splitting churches that didn't even exist when I was in seminary back in the 70s. And everybody's battling each other, and nobody is having any impact. And everybody's out there in church saying, well, there's 50 positions. I can't think them through, so let's all just come together at church, light a few candles, sit in our sofas, hold hands, and sing Kumbaya, and we'll just all... The only thing we have in common is an experience. We've all had some experience with Jesus, but let's not put, any, put it in words, because if we put it in words, we'll start fighting with each other. So the only thing we can do is that we can have a unity of experience. But Paul said in Ephesians 4 that it's the unity of the faith, the body of doctrine. And doctrine is worth splitting over, because there is truth and there is falsehood. And God didn't communicate to create a fog between our ears. He communicated to give clarity between our ears. And so we can know what God says. So next time we'll come back and having introduced what the issues are in relation to eternal security, we will go through the various passages related to security because what we see in Hebrews 7 is that the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ is based on his characteristic of his divine characteristic of eternality and it's because we have an eternal high priest he can secure our salvation eternally father we thank you for this time to study your word tonight we pray that you'll help us to understand these things and gain a greater appreciation for all that you've done for us in salvation and the fact that you are the one who keeps us in your hand and it's not dependent on who we are or what we do but it's solely dependent on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.